This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of spine surgical site infections from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick overview. Postoperative spine infections are a relatively common complication that has the potential to seriously compromise patient outcomes through increased morbidity, increased mortality, increased reoperation, increased hospital stay, increased treatment costs, which are estimated to be approximately 200,000 per patient, and worse overall long-term outcomes. Moving on to the epidemiology, as far as incidents, in general, surgical site infections are the most common hospital-acquired infection that occurs in the early postoperative period. Spine surgical site infections occur in 0.7% to 16% depending on the type of spine surgery, approach, use of instrumentation, and indication for surgery. Incidence of surgical spine infections in a series following orthopedic spinal operations is 2%. Now, let's specifically talk about the incidence of spine surgical site infections of some procedures. That is lumbar microdiscectomy, lumbar fusion, and fracture stabilization slash trauma. Lumbar microdiscectomy with prophylactic antibiotics has a reported 0.7% incidence of infection. The use of an operating microscope for discectomy doubles this rate to 1.4%. Moving on to lumbar fusion, the risk of infection is higher with spinal fusion because of the presence of spinal instrumentation. In elective surgical instrumented cases, the incidence of infection has been reported to be 2.8% to 6%. Finally, moving on to fracture stabilization slash trauma, traumatic spine injury has an increased infection risk of up to 10%. This is because of greater local tissue hypoxia, longer ICU stays, and greater soft tissue damage, as well as a catabolic state leading to protein malnutrition and greater comorbidities that can contribute to increased infection risk. Risk factors associated with trauma-related surgical site infections include multi-level spine surgery, treatment delay greater than 160 hours, complete neurologic deficit, and severe cognitive impairment. As far as anterior versus posterior procedures, Keep in mind that posterior spine procedures have a statistically higher incidence of infection postoperatively compared with anterior instrumentation. However, keep in mind that combined anterior-posterior cases do not carry a higher risk of infection than does posterior surgery alone. Finally, average time to infection for spine surgical site infections is 14 months. Moving on to risk factors, let's go over medical risk factors, lifestyle risk factors, intraoperative risk factors, and risk factors related to the hospital stay. So medical risk factors include patient age greater than 70 years old. However, this may be confounded by older patients having more comorbidities, ASA score, diabetes mellitus, cardiovascular disease, malignancy, long-term steroid use, previous lumbar surgery, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, immunologic competency, prior infection, preoperative hospitalization greater than one week, malnutrition, and prior radiation. Lifestyle risk factors include obesity, smoking, nutritional status as malnourished patients are 15 times more likely to develop an infection, and finally, alcohol use. Intraoperative risk factors include transfusions, use of instrumentation, multiple staged interventions, amount of levels fused, operative room traffic that is a large number of nurses, surgery lasting longer than three hours, and blood loss greater than one liter. Finally, risk factors related to hospital stay includes the duration of patient stay in the post-anesthesia care unit and prolonged preoperative hospital stay. Now, let's talk about the etiology of spine surgical site infections. As far as pathophysiology, the use of instrumentation has an important role in the development of postoperative infections. 
This can cause local soft tissue irritation, leading to inflammation and seroma formation that subsequently provides a fertile breeding ground for microorganisms to grow. Adherence of bacteria to the surface of implants is promoted by a polysaccharide biofilm called a glycocalyx that acts as a barrier against host defense mechanisms and antibiotics. Metallosis from micromotion of the instrumentation can also lead to granuloma formation and provides yet another medium for bacterial colonization. In terms of microbiology, Staphylococcus aureus is found in 73% of surgical site infections and is the most frequent microorganism found in spinal surgical site infections. 5 to 18% can be methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus or MRSA. Staphylococcus epidermidis has increasing frequency in postoperative infections. Enterococcus coli and Enterococcus fecalis are seen in patients with incontinence-slash-fecal contamination. Propionobacterium acnes are low-virulence microorganisms that can be seen in patients with compromised immune systems that could present with a surgical wound infected by these low-virulence microorganisms. This is also seen as a late hardware infection. Gram-negative rods are generally uncommon causes of surgical site infections. However, it can be seen in trauma patients with severe neurologic injury and those in an immunocompromised state, that is, an injury severity score of greater than 18. There is a higher incidence seen with neuromuscular scoliosis patients, for example, in cerebral palsy, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, etc. These patients have a higher risk of soiling the wound due to poor bowel and bladder control compounded with lack of baseline mobility. Finally, moving on to polymicrobial infections, these are almost exclusively a result of direct wound contamination during the postoperative period. This can be fecal or urinary contamination of the wound in neuromuscular patients. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. Know that the psoas muscle can be a site of abscess extension from lumbar discitis, and this can present with hip and thigh pain. It's important to be aware of the anterior longitudinal ligament and the relevant blood supply are the segmental spinal arteries. As far as the classification of spine surgical site infections, we'll talk about anatomic classifications and chronologic classifications. So in terms of the anatomic classification, this is divided into superficial and deep. Superficial infections are limited only to the skin or subcutaneous tissues without fascial involvement, while deep infections involve the fascia and or muscle. Deep infections are unlikely to respond to the standard six-week course of antibiotics alone. Moving on to the chronologic classification, this is divided into early, late, and latent. An infection is considered early if they occur within the first three weeks of the procedure. An infection is considered late when it is more than four weeks later. And finally, a latent infection is one that is years after surgery. The mechanism of spine surgical site infections can be secondary to direct inoculation, early postoperative, that is an outside-in contamination, or late hematogenous contamination. So direct inoculation includes contamination during surgery, where a substantial amount of bacteria are needed at the operative site to cause a surgical site infection, specifically greater than 105 organisms. This leads to infection within 30 days. Early postoperative, or outside-in contamination, can include drains, seroma drainage creating an outside-in contamination, and soiling of the wounds. Finally, late hematogenous contamination can be secondary to dental work or a foreign infection, such as a UTI. The Thalgott classification is based on host factors and severity of infection. Host factors are divided into A, normal, B, local or systemic disease, like from smoking or diabetes, and C, refers to immunocompromised. Anatomic factors are divided into 1, 2, and 3, where 1 refers to a single organism, whether deep or superficial, 
Two refers to a deep infection with multiple organisms, which require an average of three irrigation and debridements. And finally, three refers to a deep infection with multiple organisms and myonecrosis, which is very difficult to manage and have poor outcomes. Moving on to the presentation of spine surgical site infections, patients may have a history of night sweats. Symptoms can include wound drainage, which is the most common presentation, increasing pain that increases with time, as post-op pain should improve with time. Other symptoms include constitutional symptoms, where fever is the most common generalized finding with an infection. Temperatures of greater than 39 degrees Celsius is worrisome for a bacterial deep wound infection. Generalized sepsis includes generalized malaise, lethargy, confusion, hypotension, and organ failure is an indication for emergent surgical debridement. The condition usually presents as generalized malaise, lethargy, and even confusion. On physical exam, wound erythema or discharge are common with superficial infections. The wound actually may be clean with deeper infections. As far as drainage, persistent draining of a seroma will be clear, while copious or purulent discharge is consistent with infection. Physical exam may also reveal tenderness over the surgical site. As far as imaging, plain radiographs of the spine are rarely useful for the diagnosis of early infection. Acute findings are usually normal, while late and latent findings can include loss of disc height and plate erosion and lucencies that may be present around orthopedic hardware. A CT scan can be indicated when there's a concern for the fusion status and implant positioning. As far as views, these are best seen on sagittal and axial images. As far as findings, computed tomography scans may show multiple lesions involving the end plates. Other findings can include lytic lesions around the screws slash implants and presence of a pseudoarthrosis. Moving on to MRI, as far as indications, MRI is the most useful study to diagnose a surgical site infection. MRI is the most useful imaging study, but it must be interpreted with caution. As far as the technique, gadolinium enhancement improves the diagnostic accuracy of MRI and should be used whenever infection is suspected. Gadolinium enhancement increases the sensitivity of MRI. As far as findings suggestive of infection, rim enhancement of a large fluid collection is pathognomonic for infection. Other findings suggestive of infection include ascending epidural collections, evidence of bony destruction, and progressive marrow changes as well as ascending epidural collections on MRI scans, which are also diagnostic of infection. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, an inflammatory response following surgery is similar to that seen with infection. Finally, in terms of bone scan, this modality is rarely used. White blood cell labeled scans may be helpful for identifying an infectious focus. Indications for these scans include a patient that is unable to tolerate MRI, for example, in the setting of a pacemaker. As far as studies to obtain, serum labs should include a hemoglobin A1c, which should be obtained preoperatively for all diabetic patients, and this number should be less than 7. White blood cell count should be obtained, but this is an unreliable indicator of infection. An ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate can remain elevated for up to 6 weeks after surgery. However, rising levels after the fourth postoperative day can be suggestive of an infection. CRP or C-reactive protein levels normalize within two weeks. These typically peak around post-op day two. Persistently high levels or a second peak is concerning for infection. Keep in mind that CRP is a more sensitive indicator for the presence of a surgical site infection. CRP has been reported to be the most sensitive clinical laboratory marker in assessing the presence of infection and treatment response. Keep in mind that normalized CRP with improving ESR is suggestive of a postoperative surgical site infection resolution. Another serum lab to obtain is albumin, where less than 3.5 grams per deciliter is concerning for malnutrition. 
Finally, a transferrin level of less than 150 micrograms per deciliter is also concerning for malnutrition. Other studies to obtain include cultures. Keep in mind that superficial skin cultures, whether from the skin or drainage, do not reliably assist with identification of the causative organism. Other cultures can be secondary to aspiration, or preferably intraoperative cultures, which remain the gold standard for identification of the causative organism in surgical site infections. It's important to note that cultures may be negative in latent infections. Keep in mind that culturing of removed hardware may yield the offending organism due to bacteria, quote, hiding in the glycocalyx. Remember that intraoperative cultures should be obtained prior to antibiotic administration. Intraoperative biopsy samples include the gross anatomy, histology slash frozen sections, and immunostaining. As far as the differential diagnosis for spine surgical site infections, the top four key differential include adjacent segment disease, inadequate decompression, postoperative seroma, and postoperative hematoma. As far as the treatment of spine surgical site infections, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes oral antibiotics and close observation, which is only indicated for mild superficial infections. Operative options include urgent surgical debridement, wound management, plus or minus plastics, infectious disease consults, and targeted IV antibiotics. This is indicated in the vast majority of cases for any infection that does not respond to antibiotics, unacceptable spinal deformity, neurologic deficits, and progression of infection on follow-up MRI studies. Indications for hardware removal include loose hardware, refractory infections, a latent infection and fusion obtained, and finally keep in mind that titanium implants are best for use in infection cases. Indications to retain hardware includes insufficient stability from lack of solid fusion. As far as outcomes, there is a worse overall long-term outcome compared to the index procedure without an infection. Outcomes also include increased treatment costs. Now let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. As far as oral antibiotics and close observation, as far as the technique, typical antibiotics that are used include Keflex, Bactrim, Clindamycin, or Augmented. The choice depends on the pathogen of concern. Keflex is typically used for methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, or MSSA, and the dose can be Keflex 500 mg TID versus 250 mg QID. Bactrim is used for MRSA, clindamycin is used in the setting of a penicillin allergy, and augmentin is used in the setting of an anaerobic infection. Local wound care includes daily dressing changes, as well as betadine ointment to the surgical wound with dressing changes. Moving on to urgent surgical debridement, wound management, plus or minus plastics, and ID consult in targeted IV antibiotics, the treatment goals will be to eradicate infection, obtain wound healing, maintain mechanical integrity of instrumented fixation, and maintain viability of the bone graft. As far as the approach, you will utilize the prior incision, remove the necrotic edges of the wound, and keep in mind that you should approach down to hardware to avoid dissecting into the dura. Extensive scar tissue around the dural sac can make the determination of the dural sac difficult. As far as debridement, be sure to debride the tissue in a layered fashion, and pulse lavage with normal saline plus or minus antibiotics. As far as instrumentation removal, be sure to remove any loose hardware. Reinstrumentation slash extension of instrumentation will restore the stability of the spine. This will be done by upsizing existing screws, extending proximally if needed, and consider an anterior procedure if needed. As far as wound management, multiple debridements should be done if needed, and be sure to remove all devitalized muscle tissue. Also be sure to remove all loose bone graft. You can use negative pressure wound management. Dressings and closed suction irrigation systems are becoming more popular in the clinical management of infected wounds to support the wound healing process. 
And finally, if needed, you can use muscle flaps and local rotational flaps for large soft tissue defects. Wound closure should be done with non-braided suture and a tension-free closure. This may require paraspinal muscle flaps with a plastics consult, and you may also use SPI, or fluorescence imaging technology, which helps determine the vascularity of the wound. Other options include antibiotic beads, drains, specifically multiple drains are typically used, both superficial and deep, a wound vac, and targeted IV antibiotics. Be sure to obtain culture if possible and then treat with targeted agents. Treatment depends on the culture results, but generally infections with anaerobes are polymicrobial and need to be treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics such as vancomycin or metronidazole administered IV for six weeks. Patients usually require six weeks of IV antibiotics, so be sure to obtain a PICC line, monitor the CRP and ESR, keep in mind that serial MRI is usually not indicated, and prolonged IV antibiotic therapy can delay hardware removal long enough to allow a solid fusion to occur. In terms of complications, the ones to know include wound complications, pseudoarthrosis, neurologic deficits slash paralysis, sepsis, and organ failure, death, and worse overall outcomes. As far as the prognosis of spine surgical site infections, these have the potential to seriously compromise patient outcomes. Finally, let's end this review session talking about prevention. Preoperative prevention strategies, that is prior to surgical admission, include decreasing changeable risk factors, certain lifestyle factors like weight loss, smoking cessation, and abstinence from alcohol and drugs. Medical risk factors that you can mitigate preoperatively include glucose control and addressing other sites of infection, like UTI, and nasal swabs, specifically povidone iodine swabs for all patients or for MRSA carriers. Intraoperative preventative strategies include skin preparation that is non-sterile, specifically shaving, where clippers are preferred over razor, isopropyl alcohol, and surgical prep. Other intraoperative strategies include room sterility, where you should use proper sterile technique, minimize room traffic, as well as proper prepping and draping. Another strategy is preoperative antibiotics, which should be administered within one hour of skin incision. This significantly decreases the incidence of postoperative spinal wound infections. However, some studies suggest this may only decrease the severity of the infection. Preoperative antibiotics should be given before incision and repeated when the operation exceeds four hours. As far as antibiotic selection, in the setting of no penicillin allergy, a first-generation cephalosporin, where cefazolin is the most common, is the most commonly used prophylactic antibiotic. Patients will usually be given 2 grams Q8 hours for the first 24 hours, or 3 grams Q8 hours for obese patients that is defined as greater than 100 kilograms or a BMI of greater than 35 kilograms per meter squared. In the setting of a penicillin allergy, vancomycin or clindamycin are given to patients who are allergic to cephalosporins. Vancomycin dosing is 1,000 mg Q12 hours, and the infusion needs to start greater than one hour from the incision to allow for sufficient tissue levels of antibiotic. Clindamycin dosing is 900 mg Q8 hours. Patients at risk for MRSA should be treated with prophylactic vancomycin. Other intraoperative strategies include the length and complexity of surgery. So if you can decrease the invasiveness of surgery, that is the area of the surgical bed, decrease the time of surgery, and decrease blood loss. Wound antibiotics include antibiotic irrigation, otherwise known as holy water, which is mixed with normal saline. In terms of vancomycin powder, the use of powdered vancomycin locally administered during surgery has been associated with reduced surgical site infection rates. This is because there will be a high local tissue concentration for several days post-op. However, keep in mind that vancomycin powder has been linked to increased gram-negative organism infections if they do occur. Other intraoperative strategies include betadine soaks, that is 0.3% betadine soak for two minutes, 
Frequent release of retractors during the procedure is another strategy that is at least every two hours. This reduces the amount of tissue necrosis at the end of the procedure. Debridement of necrotic tissue at the end of the procedure is another strategy, and this is because muscle tissue that was retracted may become necrotic from pressure necrosis. Hemostasis is another intraoperative preventative strategy, as seroma and hematoma can subsequently get infected. Drains are another strategy, as these can evacuate any postoperative hematoma or seroma. However, some studies have not found a difference in surgical site infections with the use of drains. The routine use of drains is not recommended after single-level procedures by the North American Spine Society. Finally, a vacuum-assisted closure or dressing slash a wound vac is another intraoperative slash postoperative strategy to decrease infection. Postoperative strategies include postoperative antibiotics, which are continued postoperatively for no longer than 24 hours. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. The use of topical vancomycin powder in open spine surgery would lead to which of the following? And the choices are one, an increase in overall surgical site infection. Two, if infection does occur, a higher rate of vancomycin-resistant surgical site infection. Three, an increased rate of non-union of the fusion site. Four, an increase in infection-related medical costs. And five, if infection does occur, a higher rate of gram-negative surgical site infection. The correct answer to this question is five, if infection does occur, a higher rate of gram-negative surgical site infection. So topical vancomycin powder in spine surgery has been shown to decrease the rate of surgical site infections. However, when an infection does occur, there is a higher rate of gram-negative surgical site infection. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, an increase in overall surgical site infection is incorrect as multiple studies have shown a decreased rate of surgical site infection with topical vancomycin powder in open spine surgery. Answer two, if infection does occur, a higher rate of vancomycin-resistant surgical site infection is incorrect as topical vancomycin powder has not been shown to increase the rate of vancomycin-resistant surgical site infections. Answer three, an increased rate of non-union of the fusion site is incorrect as no study has shown topical vancomycin powder to lead to an increased rate of non-union in spine surgery. Finally, answer four, an increase in infection-related medical costs is incorrect, as infection-related medical costs have been studied and have shown to decrease with topical vancomycin powder in spine surgery. To quickly review, surgical site infections following spine surgery has been estimated to occur at a rate of approximately 2.1%. The rate of surgical site infections varies based on patient and surgical risk factors, including operative time, blood loss, and prior surgical site infection. The use of topical vancomycin powder has been shown to decrease the rate of surgical site infection in spine surgery and is therefore of significant interest. The rates of gram-negative surgical site infection and culture-negative fluid collections increases with the use of topical vancomycin. Kahn et al. performed a meta-analysis of nine retrospective cohort studies and one randomized control study looking at the use of topical vancomycin powder in spine surgery. They found the vancomycin powder led to a pooled absolute risk reduction and relative risk reduction of 2.8% and 68% with a number needed to treat of 36 to prevent one surgical site infection. They concluded that vancomycin powder in open spine surgery may be protective against surgical site infection. Booty et al. reviewed surgical site infection in spine surgery. They report the overall rate of surgical site infection in spine surgery to be 2.1%. They state that patient risk factors for surgical site infection include diabetes, obesity, smoking, 
poor nutrition, and nasal colonization with methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus or MRSA. The author's preferred treatment for surgical site infection is incision and drainage in the operating room with targeted antibiotic therapy. Chotai et al. reviewed 2,802 patients who had intrawound vancomycin powder applied during open spine surgery. They found vancomycin to have a lower rate of deep surgical site infection, that is 1.6% compared to 2.5%. Of the patients who developed the subsequent surgical site infection, despite the use of vancomycin, none were found to have infections with organisms resistant to vancomycin. They concluded that the use of vancomycin during index spine surgery was protective against surgical site infection and did not appear to create vancomycin-resistant organisms after surgical site infection. Godel et al. reviewed 110 patients with traumatic spine injuries that were treated with instrumented spinal fusion either with, that is, the treatment group or without, that was the control group, of topical vancomycin. They found a significantly lower surgical site infection rate in the treatment group, that is 0% versus 13% in the control group. They found that each infection cost an average of $33,705 or a total cost savings of $438,165 per 100 posterior spinal fusions for traumatic spine injuries treated with topical vancomycin. They concluded that topical vancomycin leads to a reduction of surgical site infection and can lead to cost savings in traumatic spine injuries treated with posterior spinal fusion. And moving on to the final question. Which of the following is the most sensitive parameter to detect the increased inflammatory response seen with both postoperative infection and the use of instrumentation in spinal surgery? And the choices are 1. Patient temperature, 2. White blood cell count, 3. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate, 4. C-reactive protein, and 5. Rheumatoid factor. The correct answer to this question is for C-reactive protein. So the most sensitive parameter to detect inflammation elicited by implants and infection is the C-reactive protein, or CRP. CRP is an acute phase reactant that increases sharply immediately after surgery, within six hours after tissue damage. CRP then peaks two to three days later and returns to normal levels five to 21 days after the inciting event. In contrast, ESR reaches its peak on days four through 11, then remains elevated for a prolonged period of time. Takahashi et al. performed a level 3 study of patients who had undergone spinal surgery with and without instrumentation with the primary outcome of infection. They concluded that renewed elevation of C-reactive protein, white blood cell count, and body temperature after postoperative days 4 to 7 may be a key indicator of postoperative infection. That's all for this review about spine surgical site infections. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.